Acts chapter 6, verse 8 to 15. We'll start there first. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They they produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Keep your thumb in there. We'll come back to the scriptures in a minute. Stephen is one of the first of seven deacons of the church, and he's been selected for that purpose because he fit the criteria laid out by the apostles. He had to be full of wisdom. He had to have good character. And he had to be full of the Holy Spirit. How many know, if you want to be a leader in church, you probably need those three traits. All right? Because it's not about us and what we can do. It's about what the Spirit does in us. And if we've got those three things going, the Lord can do great things. In these verses, Luke puts more effort into describing Stephen by saying he is full of God's grace and power also. And this makes him a really balanced Christ-like man. Grace and power. One writer describes him as being sweetness and strength merged into one personality. I don't know about you guys. I would like to attain that. I, I wouldn't mind that on my headstone. Sweetness and strength in one personality. Uh, that would be really cool. I'd be happy with that. Not only is he spirit-filled, but he's also operating in charismatic gifts, in particular signs and wonders in the name and the power of Jesus. Something to note for a bit later on in our series. We've just read that he's taken on a rather formidable audience. This is a synagogue, a group of Jewish believers made up of people who from, from around, they've come from around the world. They're now Jews, but they were once slaves and are now free after fulfilling their debts, which is what they've got their name from. These guys have seen a thing or two in their former lives. These guys have been around the world a bit. They've spoken the world's language. These are Greek-speaking Jews. They understand the Hellenized world around them. They've seen all that the Roman Empire has to offer. And they've chosen Judaism as their religion of choice. These guys are hardcore Jews with deep conviction. And we read here that Stephen, who is also a Greek-speaking Jew, is holding his own with these people. But when they find they can't argue against him with their own wisdom, they resort to lies and violence in order to silence the God-placed words of this man. And that brings him to a face-to-face with a group called the Sanhedrin. That's the top 70 minds of Israel to, uh, to judge matters of religion and law. We know already that these guys have tried and failed to silence the Christian influence. We know that they're not understanding this new Jewish group called the Nazarenes and going, what on earth are we going to do with these guys? Round about now, they're looking for a scalp. They're looking for someone to make an example of. 
And it could well be that Stephen is going to play right into their hands here. The two charges brought to the Sanhedrin's attention are actually quite serious. The first charge against him is to speak against the temple of the Lord. The temple was incredibly sacred to the Jews. It was a sanctuary, the holy place where they, where they, it was a reference point for them for where God was. The second charge is to speak against the law of the Lord, the Torah. The law was holy scripture. It was a recording in the mind of the, the mind and will of God. The law was God's word to them and as sacred as God himself to them. In both charges, Stephen is accused of speaking against temple and law. And in Jewish eyes, this is akin to speaking against God himself. And so the Sanhedrin is coming together to deliberate over the capital charge of blasphemy here. The charge against Stephen is made clearer by his accusers. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. We can now work out that Stephen has been reasoning in the synagogue about the teaching of Jesus and his relationship to the Jerusalem temple and the law of Moses. His conclusions about these things are hitting some nerves. But let's look at where some of this actually came from. In regards to the temple... Matthew 12:6 says Jesus made it clear that he was greater. One greater than the temple is here. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus cleansing the temple. And he's actually questioned about his authority to do that. And he turns around and makes a very famous statement. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. It, we know that John and the other disciples had time to reflect on that. And they were able to say the temple that Jesus was speaking of was his body. Now that Jesus had died and rose again, they were able to reflect and go, ah. Jesus knew a few things about himself. In his deity, he knew that his bodily form housed God. We understand Jesus, Jesus to be fully God and fully human, right? He was the, he was the dwelling place where God was at. He was the temple of God, not the enormous stone structure that stood before them. And therefore, as the true temple, he knew that he would rise again. Hence, the temple being destroyed and raised up in three days. The fact that the Jews had almost deified the temple, where they believed God to be dwelling but were willing to put Christ where God was dwelling to death. It's actually a pretty full-on thing to think about. In terms of the other charge, Jesus never, ever discarded the law of Moses. Instead, we read in Matthew 5.17 that he came to fulfill the law. The law and the prophets were designed to do a few key things. One, it was to point to the frailty of sinful man in the eyes of a holy God. You were supposed to conclude from the, law, the, the, the Old Testament that sin was a serious matter. So serious that even telling a lie would require you to take your prized animals and slaughter them to shed blood and offer that to God. That's a pretty serious deal when you understand how serious sin is. 
And it also showed how incapable we as humans could actually live up to that standard. But the other part of the Old Testament was to actually point to Christ and his work of redemption and to show what he was going to do about frail man in the eyes of a holy God. Jesus was 100% faithful to this mission. He clarified the trivial elements of the law for us. He demonstrated the holiness of God. And he did this by allowing punishment for sin to occur. How? On himself at the cross. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he was saying that the writings and the law of the prophets had reached their crescendo. And all the needs of a priesthood and sacrifice was completely fulfilled on the cross. The moral law of God still stands. You and I know not to kill each other because the Old Testament said so, right? (laughs) But its penalty has been paid for and we cling to that penalty paid for us so that we don't have to face it ourselves. The emerging difference between the Jews of Jerusalem and this new group called the Nazarenes was their stance on the law and the temple. The temple was a Jewish reference point for God, but the Nazarenes were now looking at Christ as that. The Mosaic law, which was started to be written 1,500 years prior, was a Jew's final authority. However, the Christ who rose again, in this case only a few months ago, was a Christian's complete authority. So as Stephen is being brought to the Sanhedrin with the charges laid, it seems that his teaching has pretty much echoed that of Jesus himself. And the last verse of what we just read indicates that he must be on the right track and it looks like heaven seems to be endorsing him. (laughs) Tell me in the Old Testament history, Who else had their face lit up like an angel? Moses. Suddenly he's been accused of blaspheming the law of Moses and his face lights up the same way Moses did. Wow. We're going to keep studying in and we're going to go into chapter 7. I'm not going to read the first 50 verses. (laughs) It took me a full 10 minutes just to read that myself. And it added a thousand words to my sermon. (laughs) But in there, I will summarize some of this. We see a detailed defense that Stephen makes in light of these charges. His basic thought is this. While the modern Jews of his time made the temple such a sacred thing, Stephen shows that in key times of Jewish history, this actually wasn't the case. That's what he's pointing to here. To illustrate this, he begins with their beloved patriarch Abraham. He does indeed speak clearly to Abraham. Abraham has an incredible encounter with God. But this began in Ur, in ancient Mesopotamia. It extended through Assyria and into the Aramite city of Haran. In that whole story, there is no sacred temple. There's no priest, no Israeli soil. Instead, we see God making holy ground among idolatrous heathen people, calling people out of that to back a nation out of them. He then continues into the other patriarchs as Abraham's descendants migrate to Egypt. 
Joseph is raised up in a powerful way by God. The nation's namesake, Jacob, who became Israel, lived out his years there. Then you had the tyranny of Pharaoh after that. And all that time, God is building up a powerful nation, building up a great population of people ready to to possess something special. There's still no sacred temple, no priesthood, no sacrifices, no Israeli soil, no law. God was making holy ground in the midst of a slave nation. Then Moses rises up. He's raised in Pharaoh's house, a great honor and privilege. But as he attempts to engage with his fellow Jews, he ends up killing someone and fleeing from Egypt. We know the story, don't we? After 40 years of living a life elsewhere, he's met by God in the Sinai Desert. It's a bleak wilderness, yet it's there that he encounters God's presence. And that famous line is uttered, take the shoes off your feet. For this little patch of Midian desert is holy ground. You're getting the picture? No temple, no priesthood, no sacrifice, no law, no Israeli soil. Then on that same mountain some years later, the law of the Lord is proclaimed and written in stone. The tabernacle, the tent of witness is erected. The priesthood is established. There's still a long ways from home in Israel. Eventually there's Joshua. There's the conquest of Canaan. There's the establishment of the Davidic kingdom. Then Solomon. Then finally, a temple could be built. Yet even as Solomon determined to build the temple, he was well aware of its limitations with a limitless God. In his prayer of dedication of the temple, he makes this proclamation. Who, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. To add punch to his argument, Stephen echoes Isaiah 66 when he speaks about the magnitude of God. Heaven is God's throne. And the earth, duck for cover, is his footstool. <laughs> The point Stephen is making before the Sanhedrin, before he was making before they were even called, was that God's will, God's presence, God's plans, God's inhabitants are far greater than a mere house of worship in a Palestine backwater, no matter how amazing it was built and looked. Throughout their written and traditional history, God has never been contained in such a way. The concept of the temple under the new covenant of which we live would far exceed the reach, the influence and even the splendor of the Jerusalem temple. As Stephen states, the Lord does not dwell in a place made by human hands. And anywhere God is, is holy ground. As we read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, we also see that that temple, that dwelling place of God, is in fact still a holy entity. But we need to beware because that holy entity is supposed to be us. We'll keep reading. Verse seven, chapter 7, verse 51. We'll start there. It's, uh, it's here that Stephen turns his attention to the law. He's addressed the issue of the temple. Now let's look at the law. It's not really a defense. Look at this. You stiff-necked people. 
Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Wow. It's here that Stephen turns the tables on the judges before him. His argument is putting the Sanhedrin and all that were listening in the same boat as the rest of the world when it came to the work of the cross. As Stephen shows in his first comments, through the Abrahamic covenant, the right of circumcision was introduced so that every Jewish man every day would have private and intimate physical proof that they were a set-apart people. They prided themselves in their ongoing tradition in this area. They considered themselves every bit as set apart as Abraham was because of that right, because of observing that thing. But unfortunately, Stephen sees it differently. And he tells these Jewish leaders that their hearts are in fact not set apart to God. And he deliberately chooses a shameful word for a Jew to hear. He deliberately says, you are uncircumcised. In other words, you are heathen in your heart. You are not set apart like you think you are. You are heathen in your heart. To qualify this statement, he pulls back the covers on the real story of the Jewish race and just how sinful they had been over the ages. He points out that they received a spiritually given law to follow. One spoken by their very creator. One given by the one who made them a nation in the first place. And yet they had a history of not following it. Anytime God wanted to speak into it, like when he sent prophets to wake them up, the Jews would persecute them or even kill them. Hebrews 11, we read about this a bit. Some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. What's he talking about there? The church? No. The Old Testament here. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. There was a shameful record here when it came to hearing and obeying God. They, like the rest of the world, were guilty of tremendous sin. They sat back and watched while Moses was complained against, while Saul persecuted David, while Elijah was constantly pursued by Jezebel, while others were treated miserably for the sole charge of speaking on behalf of the Lord. And as Stephen winds up, he points out that their appetite to suit themselves rather than God was on display as they pushed to have Christ crucified as well. They persecuted and killed the ones who pointed to him and they killed the one they were told to anticipate as well. In light of the law, Stephen funneled his defense into one blanket statement. You call me lawless and a blasphemer. But as the eyeballs of Sanhedrin, he goes, that charge well and truly belongs on you guys because of your attitude to Jesus. 
Following that, in verse 54, we come to the dark yet glorious part of the story. Let's read this together. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said that, he fell asleep. Stephen walked before the Sanhedrin with little regard for himself. I love that just in itself. Why are we not why are we playing it so safe as a church sometimes, you know? <laughs> why do I play it so safe as a Christian? It's gotta be an element of risk in what we are. There's no backing down or watering down what he stood for. With blasphemy charges coming his way and paid off false witnesses making the case seem ironclad, there was nothing left to do but state his full case one last time and that's exactly what he did. We can't really call it a defense. You know, all the commentators call it a defense, but how do you call that a defense? That was pretty much... <laughs> now you're making another forward advance in my opinion. <laughs> but then there's a moment where he knew his time was about to end. And he's able to proclaim with absolute confidence, there's Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. And he's standing. Notice that? Standing. I've confessed him before you. And as he promised he'd do, he is now confessing me before the Father. Then he's dragged out to the outskirts of town. Perhaps quite close to where Jesus himself was crucified. And they stoned him. By law, the accusers were required to throw the, throw the first stones. Then the witnesses. Imagine the conflict within as they threw those rocks. Paid off accusers. Paid off witnesses knowing that this was innocent blood, knowing that they were putting a man to death through falsehood. And in the midst of that, imagine the, how further confounding it would have been when they saw him praying. Lord Jesus, putting Jesus on equal plane with God, even in front of their eyes. His last comments, still a witness, a martyr. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, don't hold this sin against them. Amazing. In the wake of all that, 
in the wake of the first martyr to death in the life of the first century church, we actually see some really good things begin to take place, believe it or not. Stephen is believed to be a Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenized Jewish Christian. And his target audience today seems to confirm that. And the things he taught the people in that setting actually began the rumblings of world mission. This is actually the rock in the water creating a ripple. This is the place where his lessons would mean his Hellenized world could be reached out to. His death created a shockwave through the, from the, throughout the community on both sides. After Saul saw and approved what went on with Stephen, he went on a rampage and was beginning to make his presence felt. We'll get to Paul in a few weeks. And the heavily increased persecution forced the church out of Jerusalem. And that's a great thing because they didn't run and hide. They took what they had and went and, and did something with it. Chapter 8 and beyond, the gospel is being preached in despised places, Samaria. And it's even beginning to have some international influence as well. Stephen's legacy is that what he taught the church, taught equipped the church for the time of scattering and witness abroad. With Christ fulfilling everything the law and the temple stood for, there was no need to be so tied to it in such a sentimental and sacred way anymore. They didn't have to stick around Jerusalem anymore. They weren't so stuck to that because that's where God was. Stephen showed us the Old Testament tied God to his people regardless of location. He met them where they were, not in the buildings they made. And God initiated those contacts. He didn't wait for them to build a house and then go, fine, I'll come and dwell in that. He was presented in the Old Testament as more of a pilgrim God, working through a pilgrim people. As a result, they now understood that Jesus would be with them wherever they went, no matter how far from the temple they got. And then to put the nail in the coffin, a couple of decades later, the temple was completely destroyed. There was no temple anymore. They needed to know that sooner rather than later. But there was something else here too. With the Jews being found so out of favor with the law because of their rejection of Christ, they were now on equal standing with the rest of humanity. But more importantly, the rest of humanity was now put on equal footing with the Jews. The God of Israel was actually the God of all humanity. By being forced away from their temple meeting place, away from their sacred spiritual center, they could begin to actually put that into practice. They could begin to see and work out just where it is God goes on a Monday. Now this is another transitional chapter where Luke shifts his focus from Jerusalem ministry to mission to world mission. We just started a journey into world mission here. And as we just start about that, there's a couple of lessons we can take from this passage as we engage with the world around us as well. 
when I read about all this, I can either tell a history story or I can find some truth in that that we can look at. Which would you prefer? Here we go, first one. The sacredness of the temple and the law means nothing if our hearts are uncircumcised. There's a lot of people in the world right now who are just like the Sanhedrin that's mentioned here. They consider themselves religious. They have a form of heritage to prove it. In today's world, this can equate to church attendance or service. It can be done out of keeping appearances. It can be about obligation. It can be anything but deep reverence for a living Christ. Although the outward looks right, although we're doing the right things, our inside real being can be anything but set apart for the Lord. The Jews had an outward look of law-keeping but had a dark history of law-breaking because their inner being was not open to God and His Word. I'll let you in a little bit of a secret here. I've led a lot of religious people to Jesus. People who have all the trappings of religion but don't know Jesus. And it hasn't been limited to any denomination, denomination at all. I remember sitting in a very Pentecostal church home group with a lady who had been attending that and part of the church for three years. And the pastor just goes, something she said triggered his mind, and he goes, do you actually believe in Jesus? (laughs) She looked the part. Everyone was shocked. She goes, no. Leads her to Jesus right there. Is our heart truly set apart for Christ? Or are we just putting on the motions? External religiosity is a poor counterfeit for genuine inner heartfelt faith. I love this one. We don't need to defend Jesus. We do need to be witnesses. I'm seeing world religion in action around the world at the moment. I'm seeing Islam rioting the streets because of a comic strip made to mock Muhammad. I'm seeing people get really defensive about religious stances. I'm seeing things get really full on. I'm seeing the same-sex marriage thing and the uh, debate about whether to have unisex toilets everywhere turn into public demonstration left, right and centre. There was a video that went viral on YouTube in the last couple of weeks of a lady who claimed to be a mother of 12 kids in America going through Target, waving her Bible going, God is going to judge this place. Great defence. Do we riot and make a scene? What happens if a Hellenized world around us changes a law we might not like? Is it picketing and parading and noise making and rioting and counter abuse? And 
if we follow the leader Stephen, I don't see the answer being yes. Christians can appear vulnerable in human terms. But Jesus spoke at length about our response to those that persecute and those that mock. Hatred, rioting, bombing, violence, counter-abuse is not in there. There's been a lot of media attention on Christian martyrs in the wake of ISIS attacks in the Middle East. Those attacks are actually fueling the resolve behind some governments and the war that they're doing. An author I like, Floyd McClung, wrote this almost 10 years ago. We've been given a strange gift with militant Islam. It is an opportunity for the church to rise up, not in a war on terrorism, but in a massive love endeavor to make disciples for Jesus in the Muslim world. We need to match the ardor of suicide bombers with laying down our lives in love, not hate. Our call as Christians is to speak truth in love. We're called to forgive those that persecute us, love those that mock, and perhaps even pray the same way Stephen did. Don't hold this sin against them. It's a tough call. But God is bigger than us. And I'm going to hazard a guess and say this. I believe God is more concerned about his good name than we are. If he doesn't act and make people crispy critters because they make a mocking statement, then we shouldn't be so wound up. Instead, we need to love, pray, pursue with the Spirit. We're called to be faithful witnesses, knowing one day, like in our story today, Jesus will be standing next to the Father, confessing us before him, and our love and our truth will reap eternal reward. Stephen dropped the rock in the water, and never saw on earth the fruit of his endeavor. Eternity will reveal it forever. And finally, we need to get ready to take our faith outside the temple and outside Jerusalem. We have our temple, we have our Jerusalem. It's the relative safety of all godly people believing the same thing, and that's in this room here. This isn't the only place on earth where God does business. Everywhere we set our foot outside, everywhere God is, can be holy ground. Your workplace is holy ground if the Lord chooses to make it so. Your schoolyards, your environments that you find yourself in, anywhere God is can be holy ground. In fact, it is holy ground because you're in it. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at the many ways this happened in Acts. I'll harp on it more then. But let's get the worship team up. In the meantime, let's let, let God speak to us about what that might look like. What does getting outside Jerusalem look like for us as a church? Start dreaming about what might be. There's a pastor I know over in Adelaide that asks and actually says that the church needs to take its salt and pour it out of the shaker because only then can the world be seasoned hence my picture we're going to close in prayer then we're going to worship the Lord and I know they've gone with in Christ alone
That's what we're going to be singing after our closing prayer here. And imagine that Sanhedrin that day, they were being challenged about that very thing. Could they put all their trust in Christ alone? Could they put all their trust, instead of finding temples and all these sacred things, could they simply see Jesus as a completion of all that and go, you're the one I've been looking for all along, not the religious trappings all around me. If you're here today, I'm hoping that you came for more than something that was, oh, this is just a peaceful environment. Look, it's a church building. No, you'll find peace in Jesus. You won't find it in the building. Oh, I'm going to be inspired. You'll be inspired by the Holy Spirit, not by the architecture. Not by anything we do here even. It's actually about what Jesus wants to do in you. You could go, I came here and I punched my card and I did my religious duty. Or you can say, you know what? My heart really isn't anywhere near God and I'm going to do business with that right now. I'm going to invite you to do that. Is your heart... We all got the smiles, we all got our religious faces on, our masks. But is our heart, what's going on inside? Are we truly different? Set apart. Let's bow in a prayer and I'll leave you. If you're going, I don't know how to pray, I don't know how to do something about that, well, let me give you something to pray. Follow me, line by line. I'll give you space to repeat this. Do it as quiet or as loud as you like. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge your presence in this place. I acknowledge that my heart is not set apart for you. But I choose to change that right now. I put off religion and I choose Christ alone. I choose genuine heart change, not the outward work of religion. I choose to follow Christ, not just be a face in a crowd. Jesus, I invite you into my heart. For you don't dwell in a temple made with hands. You dwell in the human heart. The inner being of a man. And I invite you into that part of me. I ask you to cleanse me from within. Forgive me of my sin. Make me free. I acknowledge you as the Lord and the Saviour of my life. And I make myself the dwelling place of God this morning. Let it change me from the inside out. Amen.